Welcome to episode 186 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today is a special day because today we get to talk to retired agent Dr. John Glover, who served in the FBI for 23 years. John Glover became an executive assistant director, one of only three direct reports to the FBI director, and the highest ranking ever African American in the FBI. This promotion marked the fifth time John Glover had been the top black agent in the FBI and also marked his remarkable and well-earned climb up the ranks. In this episode, John Glover reviews the history of African-American special agents from 1919 through 2019 why diversity, especially in law enforcement, matters, and he recounts stories from his extraordinary career in the FBI. While he was special agent in charge of the Atlanta Division, he oversaw the FBI's investigation of the killing of black youth in Atlanta and led the Joint State-Federal Task Force, which resulted in the arrest and conviction of Wayne Williams. Because we spend time during the interview discussing his career, I'm not going to read his full bio here, but it's posted in the show notes of this episode at jerrywilliams.com. I was fortunate to attend the official celebration of the 100th anniversary of African American special agents in the FBI, which was held at FBI headquarters on November 8th. During the ceremony, FBI Director Christopher Wray spoke of the FBI's commitment to increase the percentages of African Americans in the special agent ranks, currently only 4.6% overall and only 1% for black women. During the ceremony, as I looked around the courtyard at approximately 150 retired and current African-American agents who posed for a photo with Director Ray, I was honored to be standing among so many trailblazers. Of all of the events that took place that day, the highlight was, of course, getting a chance to meet John Glover in person, especially after having the opportunity to talk with him on two occasions for a total of almost four hours. I'll post our episode featuring his review of the Atlanta child murder case on this coming Wednesday, episode 187. But before we get to this interview, I want to invite you to join my reader team. Once a month, I send out my email digest and try to keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. There's a link to join my reader team in your podcast app's description of this episode. 
the audiobook, ebook, paperback, and hardback for FBI myths and misconceptions are available wherever books are sold. You can find an easy link to some of the retailers in your podcast app. If you've already picked up a copy of FBI myths and misconceptions, thank you. Please consider leaving a review. Reviews help readers find good books. I want to thank you for your support. Now here's the show. I want to welcome my guest, John Glover, retired assistant director of the FBI. Hi, John. I'm so honored to have you here today. Glad to be here. On this episode, we're going to concentrate on diversity in the FBI and the history of the African-American agent in the FBI, because it is the 100th anniversary. So, John, thank you for uh, meeting me to talk about this very exciting topic. You're quite welcome, Jerry. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to kind of see the FBI through your eyes and the evolution of African-American agents in the FBI. I know you've studied the history. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm looking at an article that was posted in March of last year, and the title is, The FBI Has a Serious Diversity Problem. I do want to talk about that, but why don't we start with the good news, and that is about the very first African-American agent in the FBI. Could you take us back to 1919? Uh, yes, be happy to. As you indicated, Jerry, the first African-American special agent came into the FBI and um, actually signed on in December of 1919. He filled out an application in November of 1919 and was hired in December 1919. His name was James Wormley Jones. Quite an interesting individual, but I think before I mention a little bit about Jones, I think I'll just mention something about the year 1919. Historians refer to the year 1919, especially the summer, as the Red Summer, R-E-D, the Red Summer. And that was because of the bloodshed that was spread throughout many states in the United States. Uh, at that time, World War I had ended. We had African-American veterans returning from the war who, after having fought in the war, refused to accept second-class citizenship. There was the northern migration of a lot of African-American families from the South to the Midwest and to the North. Uh, there was a lot of white resistance to this movement and to this push by the veterans for equality. And 1919 records a minimum of 100 lynchings of African-Americans in the year 1919. So it was a bloody red year, especially the summer. We also had the rise of communism. And so the Justice Department formed a unit to uh, investigate subversive anti-American activities within in the United States. Uh, a young lawyer at the time named J. Edgar Hoover was uh, employed by the Justice Department and so James Wormley Jones, the first African-American special agent, reported directly to uh, Mr. Hoover. Now, a little something about Jones. He's, if you're looking for a trailblazer and if you're looking for somebody to be the first, 
you couldn't find a better person. Jones attended Virginia Union University in Richmond, Virginia, which is a historically black uh, university. He joined the Metropolitan Washington, D.C. Police Department, uh, first as a foot soldier, quickly moved from foot soldier to horseman to motorcycleman to detective, and then resigned from the Washington, D.C. Police Department and joined the segregated army in World War I. Went to officer training school and uh, became a captain. I was assigned to a number of different battles, and especially in France, and is very noted in military history as leading his troops, poorly trained, ill-equipped against a group of Germans who had held a stronghold for four years. Well, this segregated group of African-American military guys led by Jones rousted the Germans out of that stronghold. Bayonets, hand grenades, as military history would report, uh, trench by trench, ditch by ditch. And so those were quite uh, historic. So, so you have Jones, who had accomplished himself, uh, distinguished himself uh, at, in the Metropolitan Washington, D.C. Police Department, subsequently distinguishing himself in battle and in, in war. And now he's the military service is over and he's back in Washington, D.C. And in 1919, he applies for and was accepted as a special agent in the FBI. Now, he was assigned as an undercover agent, uh, almost exclusively targeting Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey was, you know, a very prominent African-American who led a couple of different movements, but in Harlem had what he referred to as his universal Negro empowerment movement, which many saw as subversive. And so Jones had targeted Marcus Garvey in an undercover capacity. And shortly in 1921, 22, and 23, three other African-Americans became FBI agents. That was uh, one fellow in 1921, James Amos. Earl Titus joined the FBI in 1922. Arthur Brett uh, in 1923. And uh, Thomas Leon Jefferson in 1922. All of these individuals worked undercover New York and Harlem targeting uh, Marcus Garvey. Now, uh, Jones was quite an accomplished fellow, as I indicated about his background, was able to move into the inner circle of Marcus Garvey and developed enough information on him to be able to have uh, Garvey charged and convicted of fraud. Now, when Garvey's case was, was winding down and was over, somebody recognized Jones as having been a police officer in the Metropolitan Washington, D.C. Police Department. So his ability to continue in an undercover capacity was obviously significantly diminished. So, but then also, and this is an interesting point, also was his and the other's potential or perceived value as FBI agents. In other words, you know, they were seen almost exclusively as undercover agents, not as what you might consider regular 
FBI agent. So that was kind of the beginning in 1919, 20, 21, 22. Did they meet the same qualifications as white agents that were also being hired during the same period of time? Were they considered on equal qualification basis? I think you know what I'm asking. Yeah, I don't know about each and every one of them, but clearly Jones was. And clearly, I think that one or two of them had served as detectives, one in, I think, Illinois, the other in Indiana. So these weren't, you know, young individuals in their early 20s. In fact, I think in 1919, Jones would have been about 35 years old. So they had, uh, I want to approximate that some of them, if not all of them, did indeed meet the standard. You will recall that once J. Edgar Hoover became director of the FBI, one of the things that he immediately did was to move very aggressively to professionalize the FBI. And that starts the training at the FBI Academy. He wanted to have college graduates and all. So because um, at the end of certain administrations, certain individuals were assigned to the Bureau of Investigation. So, you know, when I put all of this together, I want to believe that in many, if not all instances, these early African-American agents met the same standards, if not exceeded the same standards as did their white counterparts. And that's one of the reasons I asked the question, because I do recall at some point in the early history of the FBI, the FBI is known to have started hiring almost exclusively accountants and attorneys. And so I was just trying to figure out at what point in the history we're we're talking about. Yeah, well, of course, this was in the um, early 1920s. Now, if we move into the 1930s, in 1940s, you had no uh, African-American special agents as such. Mr. Hoover was then director of the FBI, traveled to certain cities, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Miami, and a number of African-Americans were hired primarily as chauffeurs. So Mr. Hoover would have chauffeurs when he traveled to those particular cities. And when he was not in those cities, then they ran errands. They conducted maybe just uh, background checks and stuff like that, kind of low-grade investigative work. Those individuals did not meet the standards of regular FBI agents during, during those years. That would be true. Not for the first wave, the first five or six But after that, that's definitely true. Could we say that the difference was that Hoover had no use for uh, African-American agents after that initial group was used to infiltrate Garvey and and those types of groups? Yeah, I want to think that's fair. If you look at certain documents, uh, Mr. Hoover definitely resisted African-Americans being special agents of the FBI and had a number of excuses for that having to do with qualifications. But the logic, quite frankly, doesn't hold true. His rationale, uh, as express rationale at the time, was that he didn't want to lower the standards because African-Americans who qualified to be FBI agents 
could get better, higher paying jobs in corporate America. Well, you see that falls on his face because you could say that uh, all FBI agents are, if not all, maybe many, if not most, could get higher paying and better jobs in corporate America, but they choose to apply for and become special agents of the FBI. So the fact that he couldn't find, quote, qualified FBI agents, that kind of falls flat, quite frankly, from a logical standpoint, I believe. It also doesn't hold water because of the fact, as you mentioned, Jones, the very first agent, met those qualifications and applied, you know, to become an agent with the FBI. So definitely Hoover's mindset changed once he did not see a quote unquote need to have, you know, African-American agents in the FBI. And I know this is going to be a controversial topic for some people listening, but, you know, this is real talk. This is... <laughs> it, it, it's, it's true. No, it's true. And I think evidently, you know what I mean, because if you look back, especially in the early 1960s, when Robert Kennedy became Attorney General of the United States, he started to put pressure on Hoover to diversify the professional ranks, as he called them at that time, within the FBI. So there's some there's a paper trail going back and forth between the Attorney General of the United States and the Director of the FBI with the Attorney General pushing and the Director of the FBI kind of resisting. Can we go back to the early days with Jones and, and Amos after their period of time as undercover agents? Those were the individuals that you talked about who then took on lesser investigative duties in the office. They were not allowed, after they did their undercover job, to return and, ha and open cases and be the case agent. No, that's not quite. No, no, no. Okay. What ha actually happened was that once their value as undercover agents diminished, so did their value as FBI agents. Now, Jones left the FBI in 1923 and left, joined the Pittsburgh Police Police Department, and ultimately retired uh, from the Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania Police Department. The other individuals left the FBI. The only one that stayed around for any time was James Amos, and he was the one person that uh, ended up. Now, I don't know what uh, Amos's uh, education or experiences were uh, before he became an FBI agent. I'm not quite sure about his personal uh, history, but he was the only one that stayed around and retired. The others resigned from the Bureau and went on, joined other police departments and went elsewhere. They did not remain in the FBI. So the other individuals that you talked about that were in the FBI at the time who were kind of conferred special agent credentials by Hoover, but in effect were his chauffeurs and did... I guess almost a, a specialized in investigative work around the FBI. They were not hired initially as special agents in the FBI. That's correct. That okay. wave in about the 40s, 50s, and before 1962, that would be true. And and it's interesting because I really, you know, my own personal experience with this is is unclear. But they weren't initially hired as special agents. You know, let's just say that they were hired as special employees. Somewhere along their career, they became special agents. Now, 
there are some theories in terms of how that happened. One theory is that since they were driving the director, they also served as bodyguards, and uh, they had to be able to qualify uh, to carry their weapons, and that's how they evolved into special agents. Uh, some other people perceive that they were loyal and dedicated individuals, and they were limited in terms of the, their ability to be promoted to higher ranks. So in order for that to happen, Hoover designated them special agents. There's still yet a third theory that indicates that, well, especially during wartime, they were not special agents. Uh, this was during the draft. They were subject to be drafted. And again, because they were loyal, loyal dedicated employees, Hoover didn't want to lose them to the draft. So he conferred special agent status on them. So one of those three, maybe some combination of all three, is probably true, but they were not hired as special agents at the inception of their careers. They were special employees. Well, I know. Special agents. Well, I, I also conducted an interview with Wayne Davis, who was like the third or fourth African-American special agent hired back in the 1962, 63. 1963, yes. Okay. And, and he had indicated even a fourth thing, and that was the fact that Hoover was getting this pressure to have minority special agents. And so he just named a few of them in order to check that box. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. I forgot about that, but I did hear that at one point that uh, with the pressure, I think, you know, the, the story goes that uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy called and asked Hoover how many African-American special agents did he have in the FBI. So while he was trying to recruit Aubrey Lewis and James Barrow, he designated those other individual special employees as special agents. So I did hear that. I did hear that. Now, Wayne Davis is a person who uh, spent some time in the administrative services division uh, in the personnel section. So uh, who would have access to a number of these records? So whatever Wayne Davis says in this regard, I has some credibility with me. Well, great. And, and for those who are interested in Hearing more about that period of time, uh, that is episode 14. But that finally, Mr. Hoover saw that his resistance was not holding up. The attorney general remained firm in his position that there should be increased diversity uh, in the special agent ranks of the FBI. And in 1962, then we have our first two African Americans who came applied for, was accepted in the FBI, and who went through training at Quantico. And one of the individuals, the one name that people really know and that stand out, is a fellow named Aubrey Lewis. Aubrey Lewis was a high school football and track phenomenon in the state of New Jersey, uh, went to Notre Dame University. Uh, graduated from Notre Dame, was a football star, was the captain of that track team. So he was the first African-American 
to go through Quantico along with another name that most people don't know, and that's James Barrow. James Barrow was serving at that time as a clerical employee in the New York office. He had graduated from uh, Catholic uh, College of the Immaculate Conception in New York. And uh, so those were the first two in 1962 African-Americans who uh, went to uh, the FBI Academy, graduated and became special agents of the FBI. Then uh, after 1962, then other African-American uh, special agents joined the FBI slowly. Uh, Wayne Davis, we mentioned his name a little earlier, he was one. There's another individual, Carver Gayton, G-A-I-T-E-N, is another one now. Like Aubrey Lewis, uh, Carver didn't stay around uh, very long. Aubrey stayed around, I think, about five years. Gayton stayed around for about five years. He had uh, come from the state of Washington, and I think he returned back to the University of Washington and became a special assistant to the president of the university, and I've kind of lost contact with him since then. But then Wayne Davis came and then um, John Kerry. Now, Wayne Davis is a name that some people know because he had an administrative prominence in the FBI, was a special agent in charge of three different FBI field offices. But John Kerry, his classmate, is an individual who most people don't know about because most of his career was spent at FBI headquarters. Uh, John Kerry had a master's degree in mathematics, held a PhD degree in computer engineering, and was very instrumental in the expanded development and expansion of the National Crime Information Center, which we all refer to the acronym NCIC. But then Kerry came about, and then there were one or two others uh, in the class. Uh, there was uh, there was R.C. Clack former second lieutenant with the military came. And then we had Jerry Davis came. Uh, I joined the FBI in 1966, uh, October of 1966. I was the only African-American in, in a class of 32. My first office was Kansas City, Missouri. My second office was Washington, D.C. and the Washington field office. There I met Wayne Davis, R.C. Clack, and uh, shortly thereafter was joined by Edwin Woodruff. Eddie, as we called him, unfortunately, is distinguished by being an, a, a service martyr. He was shot and killed by a bank robbery uh, suspect in February, January, February of 1969 in Washington, D.C. And a little something about him. Woodruff was uh, a supervisor employee in the investigative ranks of the Internal Revenue Service. He had a, a, an accounting degree from Fordham uh, University in New York, had um, uh, joined the Internal Revenue Service in the accounting department, moved up into a supervisory position, and not enough action there for him. So he wanted a more active career, and he resigned his position and joined the FBI in 1967, went to Cleveland as a first office, and then came to Washington, D.C. Uh, as a second office, where unfortunately he met his uh, death. He and 
another agent, Italian-American agent, uh, Anthony Pomisano. They were both shot and killed on the same day by the same bank robber in Washington, D.C. So this year would also be a time to memorialize his service uh, with 50 years. Yeah, and that has been done. His daughter has been pushing to get a uh, an avenue, Jefferson Avenue in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of uh, Brooklyn, co-named Edwin R. Woodruff Way. I remember seeing the press release and the photos from that, and I will make sure that I put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. You know, as you indicated, the FBI has traditionally struggled with the diversity. The first African-American female who graduated from Quantico was Sylvia Mathis. She graduated in 1973. Stayed around only about three years, 1976, and then she resigned. But she was an attorney, went to New York as one of her offices, resigned from there, returned back to Jacksonville, Florida to be with her parents. I think they were ailing or, but anyway, she wanted to return home to them in 1983. Unfortunately, she was killed in an automobile accident. So that was Sylvia Mathis. She was the first to graduate. Now, there were two or three other African-American females who were assigned to Quantico, but they did not complete the training. Sylvia was, would be the first one that actually completed the training and was assigned to a field office. And she was a, a trailblazer and a pioneer in her own way because she opened the door for the likes of Cassandra Chandler, who became an assistant director, and many, many others. Including me. You know, she was a trailblazer, you know, for me and, and those who kind of had to, to learn to accept me. I have my own stories uh, on my initial period of time in, in the FBI and, and some of the issues. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think, you know, I think we all do. When I joined the FBI, I, I had been a uh, high school teacher for about four years. I was an assistant football coach, head basketball coach, was married with two children and uh, was 27 years old and uh, joined the FBI and um, found it to be, um, you know, very, very rigid, not very accepting. And at one time, quite frankly, I was, I thought I had made a mistake and I was ready to leave. And the only reason I didn't resign during those early days was because I had a, again, a fairly successful career before I joined the FBI and was given this big party. I'm originally from Miami, Florida. So I was given this big party and all my friends and everybody showed up and everybody wished me well. Because remember, this was 1966. You know, the, the thought that an African-American could be a special agent in the FBI was just kind of beyond the comprehension of most uh, people that I know, certainly most African-Americans. It was true. You know, just had started in 1962. From 62 to 66, very few had actually entered on duty. And so here I was. And so I was given this big party and everything. So now I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm saying, what am I doing here? You know, I left. great career, great situation 
and I came here. And as I'm saying, the only thing is kind of interesting. I was too embarrassed to leave after everybody had shown me so much support, so much confidence, just knew I was going to do well and make a successful FBI agent. So I, I saw myself disappointing all those people who had all this faith and confidence in me. So I, you know, toughed it out. And uh, I, I, you know, the, the interesting, I, again, I didn't have many internal problems. I subsequently talked to a number of African-American special agents who had problems inside the FBI, problems of acceptance, problems of legitimacy, you know, the thought that, well, not quite qualified to be FBI agents. I never had that issue. I mean, I never felt it. Uh, I was accepted. And uh, I don't know, maybe some of it was because of the, the nature of the assignments I had initially working fugitive cases. And, you know, as a former football player, college athlete, you know, I was kind of right at home chasing fugitives, you know, and then had a level of success. And then in my first office, I was assigned to, uh, you know, probably one of the best agents because I was accepted by this tough James Cassidy. Okay, so that was my first office. I do want to ask you, because you said that your your thoughts about quitting was not based on anything <laughs> internal, you know, inside the institution. So what then was it based on? I grew up in Miami, Florida, attended all segregated high schools. All my schools were segregated during this time. This was before Brown versus the Board of Education. I went to college, Florida A&M University, an all-black uh, university, came back to Miami, taught and coached at an all-Black school. So I come from essentially an all-Black environment to overnight an all-white, almost all-white environment. And it was just trying to get adjusted to that, you know, dr dramatic change. And it wasn't, as I'm saying, it wasn't a gradual shift, a gradual change. It was a, a sudden change that happened. You know, I got off the train in Washington, D.C. at Union Station and the next morning, I'm here I am, the only African-American in the room. That was, you know, just that, trying to deal with that. Uh, the uh, training wasn't that difficult for me. You know, I had an educational background, so I did okay academically. I did okay with all the physical stuff. Again, you know, I was a college athlete, so I didn't have any problem adjusting to the, the training in any way. It was just trying to feel comfortable in that environment. That's really interesting because, and again, I've said this many times on the podcast, that my first four years in the FBI were very stressful. I wasn't sure I had made the right move, but it really is, was for a different reason. I mean, I was an Air Force brat. My father had been in the Air Force for over 20 years. We spent, you know, years in England and Germany and France and Massachusetts and Maine. So I was used to being one of the only ones. So I didn't come in being uncomfortable, but I still was made uncomfortable during my first four years. But I think that both of us, well, at least I'm going to speak for myself. The one thing that I can say is I'm so glad that I stuck it out because being an FBI agent ended up being the best thing 
that ever happened to me outside of my husband and my kids. I mean, I love being an agent. And if I had quit during that, those first four years, my attitude would be certainly different. But boy, it was the most rewarding experience as far as work. And I'm glad I stuck it out. What about you? Oh, you and me both. One of the reasons that I had left teaching and coaching is that I just felt like I was in a dead end situation and I had not experienced the world. You know, again, I grew up, I was right back in the town, hometown where I grew up, you know, in an environment that I felt comfortable. And I saw myself, quite frankly, playing the rest of my life, the rest of my days out in that situation. And uh, I thought that was more to life than that. I wanted to experience more than that. So that was one of the reasons I even applied for the FBI in the first place. You know, I mean, I wanted to do more. I wanted to accomplish more. And uh, I was attracted to the FBI because, you know, the FBI had that mystique. You know, the FBI is the most prominent, best law enforcement organization in the world. And, you know, I was an individual who considered myself good. So I wanted to see if I could make it in that kind of environment. And the FBI, of course, offered me an opportunity to travel around the world. Certainly, you know, travel and I had nine different moves in 23 years and that wasn't easy. But at the same time, it gave me uh, some experiences that I never would have had just in, and then work-wise. I worked on a number of other cases. I previously, on previous podcasts we had, we talked about the uh, Wayne Williams case. I had another major case before that. It was an organized crime case in uh, Milwaukee, which ultimately led to the dismantling and conviction of the entire Milwaukee organized crime family, along with organized crime members in Chicago, Cleveland, Kansas City, and Las Vegas. So that was another major case. I wasn't there for the end of it, but I was there to get it started and to do the initial work on it that served as the underpinning in which the case developed and expanded to these other offices. And then I was involved, I was the assistant director of the inspection division when Robin Ahrens, who was the first female FBI agent who was shot and killed in the line of duty accidentally by another special agent in the FBI. So I was assigned as the team leader to lead that particular inquiry. And I found myself involved in a number of other just challenging things throughout uh, my FBI career. And it's that old cliche of a saying, you know, if you find something that you enjoy doing, you won't have to work a day in your life. It never felt like work to me. It was always challenging. And the thing that I kind of liked about it was the dynamic nature of the job. You know, as you know, uh, you didn't always know at the beginning of the day what you'd be doing at the end of the day because so many things would come up. And that was, I found it challenging. I found it rewarding. I found it engaging. And it helped me in terms of, you know, just finding out who I am and, and what the limits of my abilities are. So I really, really enjoyed the career. Wouldn't, wouldn't change a day. 
I have to say, and we talked about the FBI being you know, one of the best things that happened to us in, in our career, but you know, the FBI owes so much to you. I mean, you were definitely a trailblazer. And I was reading that each promotion that you had, and you had five of them in the Bureau, and each time you became the top African American in the FBI. So why don't you tell us what those five positions were? Well, the first uh, assignment would have probably been as an assistant section chief in the laboratory division. After my inspection assignment, I was designated to be the acting section chief in the exhibit section of the FBI laboratory division. That was my first uh, kind of first first as an African-American. John Kerry was already assigned as a supervisor at headquarters. We had no FBI agent, field agents, supervisors at that time. Now, we have to stop and talk about that because that's interesting because we know that for the most part, going up the ladder in the FBI starts with you being a supervisor in the field level. And I think it's significant that that didn't happen for the first number of African-Americans that were named supervisor. I think that's extremely important to uh, to address. Uh, yes. And, you know, and again, with my own uh, experience, I became a, 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 it was a supervisory experience, but you weren't really a supervisor. Firearms and Defensive Tactics Instructor at Quantico in 1971, at the end of the year, they had money for new agents training, but they had no transfer money for instructors. Since I was assigned at Washington Field Office, I could be transferred along with another gentleman, Glenn Ng. We were two firearms instructors. They were two firearms instructors short. So they transferred both of us from Washington Field Office to Quantico to serve as firearms instructors because they have there was a shortage uh, firearms instructors with the new agents uh, training uh, classes. So that's exact, exactly what happened. So I was trained as a firearms and defensive tactics instructor at Quantico. I did that for a year. And then there was a suit, a discrimination suit in the FBI's identification division by some of the employees in the technical section saying that they were being discriminated against in terms of assignments and in terms of promotions. So we formed a task force was formed to conduct an internal investigation of those complaints. And I was on the task force that investigated that complaint. We found that there was some basis for it, and we made a number of recommendations to improve it. And as luck would have it, the assistant director of the identification division was a fellow named Joseph Purvis. Joseph Purvis had been my special agent in charge at the Washington field office when I was in Washington field office. So when the, when the inquiry was all over, he personally asked that I be assigned to the identification division to help implement the recommendations that the task force had made. So I became a grade 14 supervisor because a firearms instructor was was a grade 13 you didn't get a they 
because you didn't supervise anything. You were a firearms defensive tactics instructor, so you're a grade 13 agent, but you didn't get the supervisor grade 14. So the supervisor grade 14 didn't come to me until I was assigned to the uh, identification division. So I stayed there for a while. And back then, there was a, uh, a process where on an annual basis, the assistant director in charge submitted a memorandum to the assistant director of the inspection division saying, looking at evaluating the special agents who were assigned to his, his division and recommending the most qualified that you think are best qualified for administrative advancement. So my name was on a list of just two that went from the identification division, and that's how I was assigned to the inspection division. And as you know, the inspectors travel around the country inspecting the administration and, and operations of all field offices and FBI headquarters divisions as well. So I, you're, it's a year assignment. So as that year assignment was winding down, there was um, a major investigation going on at that time in the laboratory division, wherein there was a lot of allegations of mismanagement, allegations of fraud. The exhibit section had built cabinets and had done a lot of personal things for individuals. And in fact, Clarence Kelly was the director of the FBI at the time. It was alleged that he misused the laboratory division because some of the fellows went out to his house and put up some valences and that kind of stuff. So the section chief at the time was actually indicted and had to resign. So they asked me to go into the laboratory division the next day. So he was indicted on a Thursday. Friday morning, I was walking into the laboratory division as the acting section chief trying to hold the section together during this time. That was a grand jury underway investigating and making inquiry into a number of the activities of the uh, exhibit section. The exhibit section was like Mr. Hoover's gift shop. Individuals would be built gun cabinets or jewelry boxes or whatever, and Mr. Hoover would give these to certain individuals, senior government officials, around Washington, D.C. So the grand jury was, because Mr. Hoover was dead now, Clarence Kelly was director, but the inquiry was being made into those decisions and those activities of Mr. Hoover. And I was sitting there as acting section chief trying to hold it together. So that was a very, very difficult time period as well. And after that assignment was over, actually, I think I was would have been designated as the section chief but there was a gentleman who was an inspector coming off the inspection staff who had a health problem. So they didn't think they wanted to send him out in the field office, a special agent in charge. So he was designated then the section chief, and I was made the assistant section chief. And I held that assignment for several months until a position opened up in Newark. And then I was designated to be one of two assistant special agents in charge of the Newark FBI field office. After I stayed in Newark for about 18 months, and then I was designated as a, quote, full inspector. 
uh, if you're an inspector's aide the first time around, you're a, a team member. You're part of a team. The second assignment to the inspection staff, you're the team leader. You are in charge of that team while you investigate the administration and the operation. And then I was designated as a special agent in charge of Milwaukee and then a special agent in charge Atlanta in June of 1980. And then in January of 1983, I was designated to go back to headquarters, promoted as assistant director of the inspection division. And there's an interesting story associated with that because I had had all of these transfers in a relatively short period of time. And it was, it was taking its personal toll on my family and on my finances. And I explained to Judge Webster when he transferred me to, to Atlanta, I had a conversation and I told him that I was struggling a bit financially because all those transfers in a relatively short period of time. And this was a difficult period in the economy in which the home interest rates were up around 14, 16%. A lot of people may not remember those days. So anybody who got transferred, and I wasn't the only one, anybody in the FBI or in government service who got transferred during that period of time was suffering as well. So I had had a conversation with Judge Webster and I said, you know, I'm having trouble. Don't move me for a while from, from Atlanta. And he said, well, John, the only thing I can do is promise you two years. He said, I can't promise you anything beyond that. So two years and six months, I got transferred and promoted to headquarters, assistant director in charge of the inspection division. And I was pleased with that, pleased with it because we've had the conversation. And again, in a previous conversation I'd had with, with uh, Judge Webster, he told me that if he brought me back to headquarters and one of, as one of the assistant directors, he would likely do it either in the inspection division or in the criminal investigative division. And so James Greenleaf had gotten transferred from the inspection division, and there was a vacancy in that post. And I did have a sinking feeling at the pit of my stomach, remembering the conversation I had with him and remembering him when he said that that would, that would be one of the two positions that I would be transferred to. And I did. I was transferred as assistant director of the inspection division. And I assumed that position for two and a half years. And then there was a retirement, John Mintz, who was the executive assistant director for administration, retired. And Judge Webster promoted me to executive assistant director for administration, which is the highest level position in the FBI. That was one of three reporting directly to Judge Webster. So that was quite an honor. And I uh, sincerely, you know, enjoyed and, and appreciated and did the best to prove to him and everybody else in the Bureau that I was worthy of that assignment. That had to be, though, a very difficult assignment in that it was during that period of time that there were a number of lawsuits filed against the FBI by minority agents. First, the Hispanic agents lawsuit, and then the African-American lawsuit. As a matter of fact, I watched an FBI affirmative action Senate hearing in which you testified. 
you know, we're, we're talking about the ups and downs of diversity in the FBI. Here you are now, one of the highest ranking agents in the FBI, the highest ranking African-American agent. And now there's a lawsuit in which the FBI is pushing back against what African-American agents, you know, are saying about unfairness. Yeah, now I was there doing the Hispanic suit. The African-American sued in 1991. I retired in 1989, so I wasn't there doing that. But I was there doing some of the unrest, a lot of feelings that African-American agents had in terms of their assignment, in terms of the lack of promotional opportunities were abound, but it had, it had not formed itself into an actual suit until 1991. But I was there prior to that in about 1988. The Hispanic suit, I testified in local court. I testified in hearings because I was the chief administrative officer under the director. And as you indicated, I was the FBI spokesman. I had to testify in court. I had to testify in in a lot of civil suits. I can recall one particular one in which a support employee, she was white, had alleged that the Bureau had discriminated against her because of her gender. And I was testifying in a civil court and the judge leaned over and looked at me and kind of shook his head. And he says, you know, J. Edgar Hoover casts a long shadow. That was his response to my testimony in defense of the FBI's position. And you have got to tell us what you felt when he said that. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, I, just the bottom of my stomach dropped out because here I was. And I think in, in this particular case, and, I, and I'm trying to recall now because I just thought about it for the first time in decades, but I do think, I don't know if the case was settled. I don't think there was a ruling against the FBI, so I don't know the ultimate legal outcome of that case. I can't recall now exactly what it was, but it, you know, it stung to, equate me to J. Edgar Hoover and say that, you know, I was essentially an extension of J. Edgar Hoover's policies and procedures. And that was my interpretation of what he was saying. Well, it's strange that we're talking now about the Hispanic suit. And and again, you had left the FBI, you had retired before the black agents suit. But we started this episode talking about the fact that Hoover had hired African-American agents initially to work undercover to infiltrate groups associated with uh, Marcus Garvey. And if you could tell us a little bit more about what these lawsuits were stating, I think it kind of brings us back full circle. Oh, I think they do, because it has to do with African-American FBI agents feeling that, that their opportunities for certain assignments and certainly their promotional opportunities were being stymied based on their race. And historically, as you indicate, going full circle, there's some basis for that feeling, that belief. And I think there's probably statistical justification for that as well. So I do think that there's a basis for that. The FBI has 
always struggle with diversity. I think the FBI, in a lot of ways, will always struggle with diversity. And why is that? And for a lot of reasons. But I think, you know, the, the FBI is a federal law enforcement agency. And it is, even though it's the FBI, it's a law enforcement agency. And we may be able to discern the difference between the FBI and state and local police and all that. But a lot of other people kind of see law enforcement uh, painted with the same brush and see uh, the role of law enforcement in the African-American community is one of conflict. And people see, I mean, a hypothetical, I thought of uh, New York just most recently under a previous law enforcement administration that had a stop and frisk policy, uh, which the courts ruled is unconstitutional because 95% of the people who they stopped and frisked were just walking down the street. They weren't terrorists. They weren't criminals. They were just going about their business. So you think about that 95% of people being stopped being frisked and having the confrontation that they're not going to walk away from that experience with a good feeling. It's going to be a very negative feeling about law enforcement and anybody they talk to within the African-American community, they're going to spread that. So now comes along the FBI or any other law enforcement agency and you're trying to recruit in that environment. It's, it's, It's very, very difficult. And that article that I talked about that came out last year about the FBI having a diversity problem, there was a quote in the article that came from an unnamed senior official. The quote was, for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the longstanding failure to diversify its ranks is nothing short of a huge operational risk something that compromises the agency's ability to understand communities is at risk, to penetrate criminal enterprises is at risk, and to identify emerging national security threats is at risk. What do you say about that? That's powerful. It is powerful, and I agree with it. And and the reason it's it's uh, powerful is that when I have an opportunity to to talk to from the FBI officials, it doesn't happen that often these days. But again, I retired 30 years ago, right, 1989. So with this year, we're celebrating the 30th year of my retirement as well. I, I try to get them to see diversity not only as a moral and ethical and right thing to do, but that it's a necessary thing to do. And that's what the quote that you're talking about mentions. Now, if you're in corporate America and you're selling a product, it's easy to see the value of diversity because you want, if you're selling to a particular community, you want your sales force to be representative of that community and you want the people directing the sales force to be representative of that community because you see, you can see tangibly the value of diversity. In an organization such as the FBI, you know, Again, that it's it's a little bit more difficult to perceive, but what I my position on it is diversity, there's strength in diversity. My all of my experiences tell me the more diverse 
an organization is, the stronger that organization is. And that's what you're speaking to. Diversity of opinion, diversity of thought, this strengthens an organization. So if you bring people from diverse backgrounds and in, in the mix, and you're having discussions about evolving innovation, about investigation, I think if you have a limited input, your response is going to be limited. If you have broader input, more diverse input, you're going to come away from that with a stronger decision, a better opinion. So I do agree with that. And, and, and you know, just look at, I think, probably uh, an example that we can all relate to. Look at 9-11 and see what happened there. And one could kind of hypothesize or broaden that a more diverse FBI with greater intelligence into that community in terms of what, what was happening and all like that may have, may have had a different outcome with that. Because I think the FBI certainly realized it afterwards and started very aggressive recruitment and employment campaign because they, they realized the value of diversity in that community, but unfortunately after the fact. But yes, a, a diverse organization is a better organization, is, is, is a more effective organization, and that counts for the FBI as well. Well, we are recording this a week or two before the 100th anniversary celebration of African-American special agents in the FBI. I understand that you are going to be a keynote speaker during several of the events. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that is going to be part of your presentation? I heard Director Ray at the Society of former special agents of the FBI had a couple of weeks ago, had its annual convention, the our conference. The director, Ray, came in and uh, he indicated that within the last few years, they have been hiring more agents. They had, I guess there was maybe a hiring freeze before that, but now things have opened up. They're beginning to hire again. And he's pleased with the increase in diversity among the ranks of individuals who are being hired. And I'm glad to hear that because Director Comey, a couple of years ago, spoke to a more dire situation. His comments were that as society, American society has become more diverse, the FBI has become less so. And I haven't seen this article that you're referring to about some of the recent changes, but I do know that in about 2000, the uh, percentage of African-American special agents in the FBI was about 6%. African-American representation in our broader society, I guess, is averaged off about 12%. So, But then in 2010, so 10 years subsequent to the 2000, the percentage had dropped from 6% to 5%. And someone has told me more recently that it might be closer to 4% at this time, but starting a little bit of an uptick. And I hope we don't get an uptick, but a groundswell for reasons that we have explained that it makes the FBI a better, more efficient organization. I will speak to that. I will do everything I can to encourage uh, not only the director and the onboard agents, but 
among my African-American counterparts, you know, we need to do more as well to ensure that we help the FBI in locating and identifying individuals who can qualify as special agents and then help them to increase those ranks because it was a personal contact by an individual who I respected and revered that got me thinking about the FBI when I was teaching school and starting to look around and consider another career. So I really think we need to do a better job. So that's my message will be a kind of twofold message. The FBI is substantially underrepresented. It needs to do and can do better. And there's more that all of us can do to make that happen. I I really appreciate you coming on the show. And I would like to give you the last word. What I would like to say, though, to your your listeners, especially your African-American listeners, is that the FBI is an outstanding career. It, it is not perfect. In our society, it is not perfect. And we're not perfect beings. But overall, I would not change a day in the FBI for any other potential career that I could have had. It was an excellent career. I met a lot of outstanding people. Some of those people I still count among my friends. And when you start thinking about a rewarding career, you know, for instance, at the end of life, you kind of look back. I'm 80 years old this year. You start looking back and you want to know, you know, was did I have a meaningful existence or what I in, in the time that was allowed to me because life is so short? Well, being an FBI agent and being an FBI official affords me an opportunity to look back at my days, my career and said, I did what I could to advance the society. I did what I could to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. I did what I could to advance and promote diversity within the FBI and within society. So in my little time, in my little space, I think I did about the best I could with what I had at the time, and I am satisfied with my career. And although hopefully I'll be around for a while longer, I'm satisfied with my life. And that's the end of the interview. Don't forget that in upcoming episode 187, we talk to John Glover again, this time about the Atlanta child murders. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find in this episode's show notes a photo of John Glover and the cover of a magazine back in 1984 where John Glover was on the cover and then in a small box at the bottom of the cover was a photo of me. So you can imagine how excited I was to finally get to meet him in person. Also in the show notes, are links to a number of articles from the FBI website about the celebration of 100 years of African-American special agents, James Amos, and service martyr Edwin Woodruff, along with that news article titled, The FBI Has a Serious Diversity Problem, and another more positive news article from this year, FBI Agents' Applications Up Sharply, 
along with job satisfaction. There's a link to the FBI jobs website where you'll find more information about the diversity agent recruitment program. And if you want to learn even more about diversity in the FBI, there's a link to episode 14 with Wayne Davis, who was mentioned by John in this episode. Wayne Davis tells a fascinating story about his one-on-one meeting with Director Hoover. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If they're not sure how to listen to a podcast, have them read the post on my website, How to Listen to a Podcast, and subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This podcast is about true crime, but if you're also interested in crime fiction, I want to invite you to join my reader team, where once a month, I keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. When you join my reader team, you get access to my FBI reading resource, which is a colorful list of more than 50 books about the FBI, books written by FBI agents who have been guests on this podcast, nonfiction, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs. You can join on my website or use the link in the description of this episode in your podcast app. I would love it if you also check out my books. My nonfiction, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, which goes through 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI in books, TV, and movies. And there's also my Philadelphia FBI Corruption Squad crime series. All of my books are available wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to the very end, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.